Today's episode features the always inspiring Zen master, philosopher, author, and activist, Dr. David Loy. David covers an enormous array of creative ideas, including topics such as the fundamental nature of our true identity, and compares it to our usual mistaken egoic identity. He talks about the ego's fundamental sense of lack and the ways in which business, media, and consumerism prey on this lack. The positive and negative sides of individualism are discussed, as well as the need for spiritual practices to help us not only grow up and wake up, but in our time to also help us heal our divided societies and endangered world. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. It's a real pleasure to be able to dialogue today with someone I've only just actually met in person for the first time an hour ago, but whose work I've been following for a lot of years, and someone who has lived many incarnations in one lifetime. David Loy is a wonderful combination of both a scholar and a very deep practitioner. He's been a professor of philosophy and religious studies in both Japan and in a number of institutions and universities in the United States. He's also been a Zen teacher and plays that role and has integrated these in a unique way addressing the issues of Western civilization, even looking at the history of Western civilization through a Buddhist lens. He's a prolific author. By my count, I count at least 12 books. There may be a few I missed, but there are at least 12. (laughs) That I can guarantee. And he has also been deeply concerned with social and global issues and is currently looking at the ecological crises we face at this time and the very real threats to our civilization and bringing a spiritual and specifically Buddhist perspective to them. And this, I think, is one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast was to bring a contemplative depth to an exploration of the great issues of our time. And David embodies this capacity, these dual capacities, a real knowledge of experiential familiarity and deep practice in contemplative practices with a deep concern and wide-ranging knowledge of the issues we face. So uh, I'm just delighted to have you with us. I'm delighted to meet you personally after all these years of reading your works, and I'm delighted to have you here with us. We have a lot of things we can talk about today. I think maybe it might be nice to start on a more personal note and just ask you to say something about how you came into this still pretty rare combination of of scholar-practitioner. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you for all of those kind words. I didn't completely recognize myself in all of those compliments, but I'm certainly delighted to have this opportunity to meet and to talk about these things that we're all so deeply concerned about. And certainly you identified the issues that I'm intrigued by and and I think that we all have to be thinking about. 
So yeah, in terms of my own development, there's been an interesting combination of three things. Social activism. So I was a draft resistor during the Vietnam War. And it was as I wound down from that, that I eventually ended up doing Zen practice in Hawaii with uh, Yamada Cohen Roshi and Robert Aiken. And it was after a really good sort of several years of intensive Zen practice that Actually, it was Bob Aiken himself who suggested that I might like to go back to grad school. My degree was in philosophy. I think he was hoping I was going to be a translator because we certainly needed translators at that time. But he didn't realize how poor I was and am at languages. So I immediately ended up back in philosophy. And fortunately for me, the University of Hawaii is a great place for West comparative philosophy, which was my interest. You know, I've been doing Zen for several years and I was using that practice as a kind of ground, I wanted to sort of look at what the different philosophies had to say and sort of use that as a way to understand the sort of things that had been happening to me. And so that's just kind of how it naturally developed. So uh, and it was actually at the University of Hawaii in 1986 when I was doing a summer institute on Asian philosophies that I first learned of you and your work. So, so we, Hawaii was a common meeting place. So, so from there, you actually went to Japan to further your studies, your Zen practice, right? Uh, actually, there was a little bit of time in between. I was back here briefly. I was teaching in Singapore teaching both Eastern and Western philosophy at the University of Singapore, where I met my wife. And then we actually started a little Zen group there. And Yamada Kohen Roshi from Japan, he visited a couple times to lead retreats. And after one of them, he actually invited me back to do more intensive koan study with him. And so eventually that's what we did. I, I completed the koan curriculum with him. I realize this is going to, in some ways, is an impossible question to answer, but I still want to answer the Your Zen practice has clearly so informed your thinking and your contributions to our understanding of Western society in light of certain Buddhist ideas, and it's also at the heart of your activism, and I do want to just show here your book on Ecodharma, and we will get to this topic, but... Perhaps first you could say a little bit about how your practice has informed your life and your work and the way you approach so much of what you've done. Due to a lot of practice, as I said, in Hawaii, in particular, there was the experience that I call non-dual. And of course, this is talked about in a lot of Zen, as my teacher would say, you know, the and Dogen used to say, the idea is to forget ourselves in order to realize our intimacy or, as I might say, our non-duality with other people and with the rest of the world. And through the practice, I was having some experience of that. So when I went back to graduate school, this was sort of the real question. What did these different traditions, not only Buddhism, but also Vedanta, Taoism, and some Western thinkers like William Blake, for example, what did they have to say about that? It was very informative because coming at it from some taste of that experience myself, I could see how there were resonances, even though on a kind of philosophical level, they might be saying different things that seem to disagree with each other. What really struck me was how they were different ways of trying to articulate articulate what seemed to me the same kind of non-dual experience. And eventually that led to what became my dissertation, doctoral dissertation, and then it was later published as my first book, mm. Non-Duality. Non-Duality, yes, which 
I got, I think, soon after it, <laughs> soon after it appeared. And there's a really important point in what you said that I want to make sure we doesn't get lost and maybe you'd like to expand on, which is the implication that it was your direct experience which allowed you to comprehend these descriptions across these texts. That's what I heard in there. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate that there was a period when doing the intensive practice, I wasn't interested or looking at the philosophy. So if you try to actually combine them, I think what can happen is people can find that very distracting. Mm-hmm. So it's like I was sort of putting that on a shelf and just focusing on the meditation, on the zazen. And it was only somewhat later then with some sort of grounding in that, a certain amount of koan study, that then I was able to go back and make that gave me the perspective to sort of look at the different non-dual traditions in a different way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And David, were you able to maintain your practices when you went back to grad school? Yes, especially when I was in Hawaii, I shifted from the Maui Zendo to Kokoan Zendo. And what was nice is that was just a couple blocks from the University of Hawaii. And so we would sit together in the morning and evening, but during the day we were free to sit. And still we would have Zazenkai and Sashin once in a while when Yamada Roshi would visit some Japan. So it was really ideal that I could continue the practice while I was also undergoing the, the philosophy curriculum. David, you another thing was I heard implied in what you said was in terms of having these non-dual experiences and the recognition of unity or connection with others. Traditionally, that's spoken of as being a source of compassion and concern. Was that your experience? For sure. Yeah. And that's where it helped to connect, of course, with the issues of social justice, anti-war, most recently, eco-crisis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense if you think about it. I mean, if we're talking about a non-dual experience, which is when the sense of self or the sense of separation, the sense that there's a me sort of inside here, having some sort of reality separate from you and the rest of the world outside, when that sort of dissipates and you feel that you're not separate from other people and the rest of the world, then you could say the problems or the issues or the concerns. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not just about what's in it for me, but what can I do to to help make this a better world for everybody. So mm-hmm. I see the relationship very natural. Beautiful. And in fact, Yamada Roshi used to stress that. He said, any genuine Kensho or you know glimpse of enlightenment experience is spontaneously accompanied by this arising of compassion. Mm-hmm. And what does that say about the nature of reality? I mean, I could theoretically think of non-duality or emptiness, but just an experience connected. My boundaries of self have gone away and now... I'm experientially everything, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to feel compassion for anybody. And, I, and, and I've, I've held this question for a long time, and what you just said was helpful. But what does that say about reality that when we reach these deepest levels of our being, experientially compassion arises? Does that mean we're in a friendly universe? Hmm. I think so. I think what it implies is there's some sense of, well, or maybe we can say it this way, we can co-create the universe yes. in a way that brings out its friendly possibilities, something like that. I might but it, but it, it does emerge from that experience, compassion, if it's the real deal. So, yeah. so, now I should emphasize here, there's a little bit of a tension within the Buddhist tradition. I don't think that's as emphasized as much in Theravada yeah. or in, or in Pali Buddhism, which is not to say that they don't act out of compassion, but there's more emphasis on training and developing the compassion. Now, whether that is a real difference or just in terms of how they cultivate it, 
if I think about it, you know, within my own tradition, there was a fair amount of talk about compassion, but it's not as though we were offered exercises to develop it. Mm-hmm. The focus was on the koan study and, you know, working through the koans. And I think compassion, like sort of moral, ethical behavior in general, is kind of taken for granted. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clearer in the Theravada tradition where, you know, they would have things like metta, metta practice, where the basic idea there would be cultivating, expressing. You know, and we were speaking before the, the camera started started rolling about the times we're in and the, and the environmental mm-hmm. crisis. And, and one of the crises that particularly bothers me is the state of the United States right now, where we, we mentioned the word civil war. Mm-hmm. We're in a cold civil war right now. I think it's worse than it was during Vietnam. I mean, it's really bad. And what we need are heroes, our leaders, our individuals, are lots of us who can start to stitch together again the fabric of society so that we can respect each other and treat each other with kindness and compassion. I would imagine that what both you guys are teaching is a path to enable us to do that because it's very hard right now to be in this country and to be aware of what's going on in, in the collective and in, in politics, not to, uh, I don't know, feel some despair yeah. and suffer deeply. And what you're pointing at is the opposite of non-duality, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. really the tendency to sort of not want to relate to the other person, to sort of trash what they have to say. And, and it does seem to me it's never been so strong as it is now. Yeah. And, and so part of our task, and I'm not saying it's an easy one or that I have any simple solution to it, is finding ways to talk with people who have very different points of view. Yeah. And listen, I think. Well, that's yeah. definitely a part of it. You know, I mean, it, it's obvious, say, from the ecological crisis that you don't persuade people simply by dumping lots of facts on them. Yeah. Right. So what do you do? And definitely that's an important part of it. And sort of kind of cultivating, you know, it's not what a fool you are. Why can't you see this? But, exactly. but, but more sort of me expressing why I'm coming from where I'm coming from, but also even more important, listening in a deep, non-judgmental way to what somebody else has to say and trying to understand why they believe what they do. And I, I think you're exactly right. That is maybe the number one most important thing and perhaps the number one most difficult one too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, Roger, anything you'd have to say on that side? I'm just wondering how your deep practice experience affects how you see these conflicts. You said something you, you spoke about, Borden's relationship, but say more. Well, there is a kind of progression. You know, I mentioned that initially I was fascinated by this concept of non-duality. And I should mention, you know, non-duality, just as a term, it means many different things. It's Mm. actually very problematical because it's used in many different contexts. So whenever you hear the word, you kind of, to make sense of it, you have to ask yourself, what duality is being denied here? And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all different sorts. But what I was referring to was what to me is the most fascinating, the kind of self-other, subject-object non-duality. And then following on from that, it's interesting, there was a period in Hawaii, sorry, not Hawaii, in Kamakura, Japan, when I was, you know, toward the end of my koan study with uh, Yamada Koenroshi. And I was fascinated by death and reading everything I could, not only within Zen and Buddhism and other spiritual traditions, but psychology as well. I was very struck in particular by Ernest Becker. Mm -hmm. You know, he talked about how 
our fundamental repression isn't sexual wishes like Freud thought, but our inability to accept our mortality. And that seemed to me very profound, but also from a Buddhist point of view, a little bit off focus in that I think our fundamental problem isn't what's going to happen to us in the future, but that we don't feel real now, right? Mm -hmm. This is yet another fundamental Buddhist teaching mm -hmm. that the sense of self, the sense of separate self is a construct. It doesn't have any you know, separate reality. And what developed from that for me was what I have identified as, as a sense of lack. Yeah. In other words, that the sense of self, separate self, insofar as mm -hmm. we feel separate, it's, it's inherently insecure, yeah. inherently uncomfortable. And the way we normally experience that is as a sense of lack, yes. that there's something missing. And, yeah. and, and we're conditioned in different ways, according to the kind of person we are and the kind of society we're in. But that it's interesting when you just look at the world from that angle, you just see how often we're motivated by this sense of lack and trying to fill up this void at our core. Yeah, and that, that's been really one of, uh, to my mind, that's been one of your significant contributions is looking at our culture and the issues we're facing and even the history of Western society in terms of seeing it as an expression of fundamental lack and the impossible project of filling a defective self-sense by stuffing more stuff into, into ourselves. So, and you can never have enough because it's yeah. it's a misperception of what the fundamental yeah. problem is. Yeah, what you I'm can lacking isn't a, something out there. It's it's at the core. Yeah, you can never get enough of what you don't really need. <laughs> so, ex exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and your point about the insubstantiality the, of the ego, the, the separate self sense, its fundamental sense of lack. As a clinician, I see this at a deep level, and people don't recognize actually what it is. And often there's the, there's this innate feeling there's something wrong with me. And I've come to call it the, the triple F fallacy, the fundamental flaw fallacy, a, a fundamental flaw mm -hmm. fallacy that we are fundamentally flawed in some way, mm -hmm. of which lack is a key element. So, yeah. So. Maybe you could say something about, it feels like there's such an important contribution you're bringing in, the sense of lack as a driver of so much of human history and the crises we face. I'd love to hear you expand on that. Hmm. Well, it has obvious sort of psychological implications, but I think it has also really important sort of sociological or, you know, how our society works. So I think it helps us understand. Well, first of all, I think this brings a new dimension to what Buddhists have been talking about, dukkha, right? Yes. And, you know, dukkha usually translated as suffering, mm -hmm. but that's that's much too narrow, right? It's not just suffering, it's dissatisfaction, it's anxiety, it's dis-ease. And if we don't see this point, then, you know, a lot of people can think, oh, I have a pretty comfortable life, I don't, I don't have a lot of dukkha. But I think the concept of lack sort of gives a new dimension to that fundamental teaching. And the other thing I'm struck by is you, you can use it as a uh, sociological principle. You just look how our society is structured right? Mm -hmm. The problem of lack isn't just a personal one. Our society, our economic system is structured in a way to take advantage of it, yeah. to make profit without really resolving the problem. So, exactly. And if you understand lack as, how to say it, 
if religion can be understood as sort of our way of trying to deal with our sense of lack, then you can understand why the fundamental religion of the contemporary world, let's be honest, it's consumerism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, the kind of conditioning with advertising and so forth that makes us try to always, always thinking that the next thing we buy is going to make us happy. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, indeed. And I think it was Gandhi who referred to this futile attempt to fill ourselves up as like drinking salt water. It just increases the thirst. It temporarily satisfies and ultimately increases the thirst. He also said the world has enough for everyone's need, but not enough for anyone's greed. Well, it certainly yeah. applies as yeah. well. Yeah, we're yeah. certainly able to produce enough food and things that people need, right? Uh, but we haven't figured out how to distribute it. So all our brothers and sisters are taking care. I mean, I go out and there's so many homeless people in the United States right now. It just breaks my heart. And I, I lived that life for a while when I was a young man. So I, mean, I know what it was like. And there, there's some community, but you see these people who are addicted or mental health, and they just wander the streets. An old man the other day was, could barely keep his pants up, which is, you know, walking like. Oh my God! You know what? Do, what do we we do with that? Uh, the other issue was that lack, and I think that we try to use all kinds of things, and maybe that's part of the journey, trying to fill the hole with different substances or different actions until we realize, yeah. no, that's not it. And what is it? And is that our search for depth for who we really are and what we really are? And that's what practice gives us the capacity to do to cultivate depths. And from the practice you mentioned becomes the performance, the karma yoga. In other words, taking the practice from deeply working through all our stuff, these layers of our stuff, to the deepest layers. That connects us all and all things. And then taking that, which mysteriously and beautifully compassion emerges from, and then taking that back into the world. And we need a whole bunch of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas right now, you know. I think right now the earth is calling on all of us to become Bodhisattvas and Ekosattvas if if we're open to hearing that call. But again, part of the problem of the lack and the kind of social conditioning is to sort of, you know, what's in it for me? We're enclosed in our own little egos. Yeah, and I think that may get us to the show. I mean, to meditate in the beginning because we're suffering. We're not happy. And and eventually, developmentally, I think that will begin to expand why we meditate and why we do our practices. While it still may be enlightened selfishness on one hand, on the other hand, it opens us up to deep compassion for all beings. You know, I think that's exactly right. I mean, why would we make that effort to spend all this time and energy and money sitting facing a wall with aching legs and back and mind? Of course, we're motivated by dukkha, by suffering in some way. And so there is a kind of self-preoccupation there. But, but of course, the irony is that as we get more deeply into it and we realize that the self or the sense of separate self is kind of at the root of the problem. Or you could say it another way is realizing the real self is is everything, is, is much mm-hmm. larger. So even though we're motivated by a kind of self-preoccupation at the beginning, if one's practice is really developing, then then it really opens up to something much more. And But of course, many people don't get there. Even people who have some experience, some, some taste, some opening, it doesn't guarantee that they won't sort of end up using that in a kind of egotistical way. Right. Right, right. This happens right. all the time. Which brings in the question of the ego and the self. You know, for something that doesn't exist, it sure causes a lot of havoc. <laughs> I suppose that's been the gift of one of the big gifts of East and West coming together is the, the emphasis on the individuality in the West so, in our psychology and so. the emphasis on the all. And they're both incomplete, one without the other, without the small self. 
becoming a functional, optimal channel of the deeper understanding that uh, the esoteric Western traditions provide also. But largely, we got it from the East. And we bring those together. Then we have a model of what it can be to be a human, to be fulfilled, a small self and a big self, and bring that forth in a way that lessens useless suffering ignorant suffering. I was, one of your talks I was listening to, you were talking about the, the Abrahamic traditions, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and how the emphasis is on good and evil, right? Doing the right thing. And the East, it was dukkha, it was suffering. And of course, I've been so bombarded by both traditions that I was going to love both of those things, you know? And, and I try to do the right thing. I try to live a life like a bodhisattva to do the most that I can in my small way to help that man in the streets, right? And, and the homeless and, and the civil war that we're beginning to engage in in the West. Yeah, how do you hold all that in practice? I mean, do you just take the pain of being an aware human being and just hold that, sit with it? Hmm. Coming back to that indirectly, yeah. you know, this thing about individualism, it's really two-faced or two-sided because we hear, you know, how much of our problem today is a certain kind of extreme individualism mm -hmm. so that, you know, communities, families are weakened. But the other side of that that we see in America, and especially, I think, is that also gives you a kind of a freedom, you know. It's like there's a lot of people, well, you would know this, Roger, better than either of us, but there's many people for whom the the kind of individualism is is very problematical it's very hard mm -hmm. people feel lonely they don't know how to cope and you easily fall into addictions or whatever but the other side of it is for those people that are really ready to develop it gives them more of a context more freedom to do so so i think that's the other the positive side of the individualism which i certainly see say in my zen teachers pretty strong blokes you know i mean mm -hmm. uh, pretty strong individuals in their own way. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not as though selflessness means, you know, somebody's going to walk over you all the time. But nonetheless, they weren't motivated by ego, which is something quite different. Yeah. You were referring to a talk that I do give fairly often about the relationship between personal and social transformation. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is the real point of the Bodhisattva path, yeah. which also I think is probably the most important thing that Buddhism has to offer at this point. The two sides of the Bodhisattva path are you continue to work on your own spiritual development, and yet you know that that's insufficient, that you also are going out in the world and engaging, and that that is in its own way as important a part of the spiritual path as anything that happens when you're, when you're sitting on, on the cushion. And David, uh, for viewers who aren't uh, mm -hmm. Buddhist practitioners, could you expand a little on the concept of the Bodhisattva? Yes, thanks. So this is very important within Buddhism, especially Mahayana Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that developed a bit later after the Buddha. And it's the idea that one should want to awaken or that one's goal mm -hmm. in practice isn't simply your own awakening, but that it's to awaken in order to help everyone else awaken as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's been understood as kind of a sacrifice but it seems to me that it's actually a kind of a natural evolution. Yeah. Going back to what I was saying earlier, that if we, if the practice helps us see through the delusion of separation, see through the the delusion of duality that I'm inside and the world is out, mm -hmm. and if it's about more sort of feeling connected, yeah. feeling interconnected, so that my own well-being isn't separate from your well-being or the biosphere's well-being, it seems a kind of a natural. 
yeah. natural evolution from what's in it for, for me to... Yeah, that, and that, that's a very important point, it seems to me, because often the service is conventionally understood as a sacrifice. <laughs> Yet from a contemplative perspective, and certainly from the kinds of experience you're describing, the non-duality, the recognition that our true nature is something we are in truth, something much larger than this little ego and this personality then service becomes a kind of enlightened self-interest with a capital S, or a kind of natural. In fact, increasingly, it seems to me that the more accurately we see ourselves and who we really are and who everyone else really is, then the virtues cease to be sacrifices and they become, well, of course. Yeah. Mm. So... Thinking back about like when I started Zen practice in Hawaii, I was living in, say, the Maui Zendo. And, and frankly, it, it wasn't that difficult. You know, we were sitting quite hard together and a number of experiences, a number of, of things happened. That wasn't so hard. What actually was more difficult was leaving, going out into society, say, getting mm-hmm. when I got a job, yeah. actually integrating what had happened, some of those experiences, mm-hmm. actually integrating them so they weren't just a nice experience, but they actually transformed how I lived in the world. That was the greater challenge. Just because we have an experience, it doesn't mean that some of those deep-rooted sort of self-centered tendencies disappear. Mm-hmm. You have to work on them. And how do you work on them? Where you get out there and you act in a compassionate, non-selfish way and change your habitual ways of thinking. So there's a sense in which I think the one who benefits most from the compassionate activity of Bodhisattva is the Bodhisattva. Right, or the Francis prayer and giving we receive. So, yeah, yeah, Yeah. so that's right. And I'd I'd like to go back to the source of that Bodhisattvic aspiration, the aspiration to, to awaken and cultivate oneself as fully as possible in order to be an optimal instrument of service. And as I recall from the, in the original Pali, the motivation for awakening, the, I think the Pali term is samvega, and as I recall, it has three distinct meanings. It's a kind of a shock at realizing how asleep one has been and everyone else is. Second, it's a pain at the sense of complicity that one has in some way bought into and perpetuated and is some way responsible for mm-hmm. one's own sleep and unconsciousness. And third, a sense of urgency that I've got to do something for myself and for other people. And that term, an awful lot packed in there, and somehow it speaks very effectively in my mind to what you're speaking to, this recognition of, I want to help, and help of a particular kind, because I'm reminded of Mother Teresa, who was asked, well, why don't you just you know, get washing machines and speed up what you're doing and make it more effective? We're not, and she said, we're not social workers. And bodhisattvas aren't social workers. It's not just about relieving hunger and reducing nuclear weapons. It's about addressing the sources, the psychological, spiritual, inner sources of those individual and collective dysfunctions which created the issues in the first place. And that's a far deeper understanding of contribution than our culture really has. I'd love to hear you speak to that. Well, when you put it that way, I think you help to connect the, or you continue to connect the personal transformation with the social one. Because, you know, within the Asian context, if you look at Buddhism, its origin, and then the way it developed, none of the Asian Buddhist societies was democratic. 
And none of them had the kind of prophetic social justice dimension that we sort of see within Judeo-Christianity and Islam. So I think Buddhism survived and thrived because it came to an accommodation with the state so that it didn't threaten the state. In other words, it wasn't really engaging with the dukkha created by the state. It was more, you know, your problems are due to your own mind and your own karma from past lifetimes and the way you address them is you meditate, but it's all your own. And I think one of the important transformations that's been happening now that Buddhism comes Western or let's say global, is a realization that the dukkha is not just something individually caused, but it's structural, it's institutional. That's a very important shift, Rick, because these terms which get thrown around a lot and have many meanings to different people dukkha suffering and karma is really the idea was was a focus on the as you said on the individual and i think one of the contributions of the west is the recognition that there are multiple systemic social cultural larger forces at work creating our individual and collective unconscious and our dysfunctions and that effective contributions to the enormous issues of our time are going to require interventions in multiple multiple kinds. I'm reminded of Aldous Huxley's book, Ireland, where the stranger comes to the utopia and he asks, where do you start? And they respond, we start everywhere at once. And it feels like if we're going to get through these real crises our civilization is facing, we're going to require people working in all sorts of areas on all sorts of issues. And ideally, these people would also have some contemplative training so as to be able to simultaneously work on the external issues and in their very way of being and interacting, address the psychological, spiritual dysfunctions within us and between us. Love to hear you. Well, I think what you just talked about is the real heart of the Bodhisattva path, because the idea there is that there's two sides to it. You know, the Bodhisattva does continue his or her practice, but they know that that's not sufficient. And I think when you look, say, at activists, how difficult that is and how much they get burned out and how valuable, therefore, some kind of contemplative practice can be in helping to sort of ground your activism. And on the other side, I spend a lot of time talking to Buddhists and Buddhist groups that tend to be sort of self-preoccupied, you know, just that's the tradition that we've come from, and emphasizing that the expression of compassion today, therefore, can't just be a matter of individuals helping individuals, but we also have to look at these kind of structural challenges. Here's an example, ecologically, even if you just focus, say, on climate, people don't say climate change anymore, thank goodness, we say climate emergency, but there's a lot of emphasis on your own lifestyle. It's like, okay, let's reduce our carbon footprint. So we have solar panels, I drive an e-car, and so forth. But somehow the idea that an individual transformation is sufficient, that that's our main challenge. We have a government now that's complicit with very powerful corporations that continue to make a great deal of money from you know fossil fuels. And so we need to work on both levels. Yeah, we do need to reduce meat consumption, et cetera, et cetera. But we also need to do what I think is more difficult, find ways to work together that can actually address some of these structural issues. Yeah, and it really does feel like we're called to be contributors, but also creative in looking for what the most, it feels like, the, as I understand Zen, there's a concept of the Genji koan, the koan that arises out of life itself. 
and it feels like one of the Genji Cohen's of our time is first, what's the, the most strategic contribution I, with my unique situation and training and background, so, et cetera, can make at this time? So. And that calls for a really creative response, innovative. So, which is there in Buddhism, right? Upaya Kashalya, sort of skillful means. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Some years ago in New York, I met a young Zen practitioner who told me about something that he had started. He started an online program where he would talk to people who were running for public office. I think this was state legislature in New York. And, and he would ask these people, you know, I have all of these people, 25,000 people have pledged that they won't vote for anyone who accepts corporate contributions. So I would like to know your attitude toward corporate contributions so I could let them know. Oh, and by the way, you won your last election by less than 15,000 votes. So, you know, I just thought this was marvelous. That, <laughs> and they were beginning to have some success. I've lost touch with them. I don't know where it stands now. Mm -hmm. but, but I was very impressed by that as an example of real creativity. Yeah, that's a nice creative response. And, yeah. and we've never had a spiritual practice internet maestro you know so these are these are really novel kinds of contributions that are possible at this time is that something you feel that can emerge from prolonged and deep practice is not only insight into the nature of the self who we are but creativity solutions for the performance from the practice well it's interesting you say that because it brings us back to this whole question of non-duality i mean where does our creativity come from and one interesting thing is when you look at the most creative people you know the great composers poets even scientists sometimes they say it just sort of comes to them in sort of a non-dual way so it's like insofar as our practice can help us let go of ourselves i think it can make us more creative and more open to those kinds of moments when they arise yeah, we, we get our stuff out of the way so yeah exactly uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. The wisdom of the universe or however that yeah. you want to say that comes through. Yeah. Yeah. David, we've talked a couple of times about non-dual experiences, various kinds of openings that people can have. And yeah. you've been one of the people who's who's written about very different understandings of awakening. And you've called it, I forget the words you use, but transcendent and imminent mm -hmm. as two kinds of interpretations of awakening. Mm -hmm or the transcended to the possibility that there is another realm of some kind that we open and awaken to or imminent is it a is the seeing of this world is it this world seen differently uh, and there's not a lot of deep thinking about this i'd love to hear you speak to this here i'm partly inspired by an academic named loyal rue who wrote a book uh, everybody's story about sort of evolution, including cultural evolution, yeah. spiritual evolution. He made a point there that really struck me because it expressed so well something that sort of had been growing in my mind. He said that axial age religions, or so let's say religions like Buddhism and Christianity. And we should say axial age, those which arose, I think you have it in one of your books from about 900 years before the common era up to towards the common era. Yeah, so it's... Uh, People expand and contract, but certainly it's sort of the middle of the first millennium BCE. In other words, really around the time of the Buddha. And it's quite fascinating that you had not only the Buddha, but, you know, so many other great religious founders doing the same thing around the same time in different mm -hmm. places, right? Lao Tzu, Chuangzi, Confucius in China. Not only the Buddha, but uh, Mahavira and the Upanishads in India. You have some of the great early prophets, Isaiah and so forth in Right, and, then, and then later, Jesus. 
and even in Greece, you know, some of the pre-Socratic and post-Socratic philosophers there. Yeah. So something was happening, and it's fascinating really? because yeah. people can't figure out. I mean, it doesn't seem like there was any sort of direct influence, but the same sort of things was springing up. But anyway, getting back to Loyal Rue, having made the point about axial age religions, he said that in the future, axial age religions, like we would say Buddhism and Christianity, were going to become less important because they didn't have what it takes to address the kind of problems we have today. Mm. And the reasons he specified that were two. He said cosmological dualism and individual salvation. And by cosmological dualism, he meant the idea that there, there's another higher reality, which therefore inevitably, to some extent, devalues this one. I mean, there's a sense in which, say, if your ultimate goal is to qualify for eternity with God in heaven, well, what happens in this world isn't all that important. It's like a training ground, but it's, it's a means to a higher end. And so it ends up sort of minimizing the value of this world. And the other thing, individual salvation. And I think we have a bit of that in Buddhism, too. I mean, the Bodhisattva path notwithstanding, the idea that somehow my enlightenment can happen without yours, and, you know, it'd be nice if you're enlightened, or it's nice if you go to heaven too, but ultimately, it's not going to affect, you see? I got mine. I got mine, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think, frankly, he's onto something there in the sense that this is something our spiritual traditions need to deal with, whether they have partly created the problem by devaluing this world in that way. And I think it's a little more interesting, or there's a bit more of a tension in Buddhism between early understandings of nirvana and maybe Zen more about realizing the true nature of this world. But even the way we understand emptiness, that can devalue normal phenomenological reality. Mm-hmm. So as I read this one of your latest books, A New Buddhist Path, you delve into this issue and yes. look at some of the texts and the, yeah, they can be understood this way or the other way. Where do you come down now on this? Because uh, in some ways it's central to contemplative practice, spiritual traditions, not just Buddhism. And yet your examination of the Buddhist texts actually, you know, it's not so clear. Well, as I said, I think there's an interesting tension within the Buddhist tradition, Mm -hmm. but you can see both sides of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should mention something first very briefly, too, because you had mentioned transcendence imminence with your earlier question, mm-hmm. that I think just like some types of spiritual practice can sort of focus us, I want to go somewhere else, I think the way sometimes, for example, the mindfulness movement can encourage a kind of, if the problem is just the way my mind works and the world is fine, it's just mm-hmm. I need to change how my mind works and mm-hmm. just fit in better. And I think that's another extreme. That, mm-hmm. that is also problematical in light of what we were saying about the way that our lack has become institutionalized. Yeah, Yeah, and you make the very important point in this book that that in some ways, yes, the mindfulness movement obviously has enormous benefits, and it can be used as a band-aid over larger institutional and social dysfunctions. So, exactly right. I mean, I think, just to follow up with what we were saying earlier, you know, Buddhism doesn't really talk much about good versus evil. It's about these three poisons, and I think we need to see that we've institutionalized them, right? Yeah, and could you say something about what three poisons are? Sure. Three poisons also called the three fires, giving the translations greed, sometimes hatred or ill will, could even say aggression and delusion. And it seems, frankly, this 
sort of gives us the heart of a sort of Buddhist social analysis, if you think of the way they've become structural. So I think our economic system, I mean, if greed means you never have enough, whoa, right? Consumerism, but also corporations. Mm-hmm. You're never profitable enough. Your market size, your shares are never high enough, you know, stock market price mm-hmm. never high enough. I mean, I think it's sort of never enough in the sense of, uh, you know, you always want to be more profitable and you always want to grow. But then there's this old problem. Why is more and more always better if yes. it can never be enough? Yes. And you make the point that a number of our economic institutions are premised on feeding or even multiplying this sense of lack and greed and I think of the uh, food industry, one of the things they aim for, this is a quote, is getting the right mix of salt and sugar and fat, etc., so as to create the bliss point of eat attainment. <laughs> as like, we are up as individuals, and at the moment, we have, what, 600 million malnourished, underfed people in the world, and a couple of billion obese people. And this extraordinary contradiction. And we as individuals are up against a multi-billion dollar advertising industry designed with some of the brightest minds out of college working on ways of feeding into and amplifying that inherent sense of lack so as to feed corporate profits. And we can add to that the ecological dimension that, I mean, when we expand beyond food, but just to the whole production consumption, Mm -hmm. it's also an economic system that's predicated on using up more and more of the world's resources. Yeah. I think it was Naomi Klein who pointed out that, you know, we have these two systems. On the one hand, we have this economic system that has to keep growing if it's not going to collapse. And we have the biosphere, which basically doesn't grow. And I think we can understand the ecological crisis is like, you know, sooner or later, the first system is going to come into conflict with the second system. And as she also said, only one of those systems can be changed. Yeah. And uh, you were saying we'll come into conflict with, and I know you're very aware of this, but we're already there. And as I recall, the Stockholm Institute has nine markers of ecological sustainability, we've already crossed the threshold of four of them. So it's like we're already in this and in deep, deep trouble right now. Stay tuned for part two of this intriguing discussion with Zen master, philosopher and activist, Dr. David Lloyd. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.